Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be finishing the book of Romans. We are going to be covering Romans chapters 7 through 16. In this seventh chapter, Paul is going to be talking about the relationship of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the law of Moses. This kind of carries over from his theme of the book of Romans, which really is summarized in Romans chapter 1. To Paul, the gospel centers on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the gospel of Jesus Christ holds the power to transform us as human beings and to reconcile us with God, if we trust in it, if we trust in its message, and if we trust in Jesus Christ and have faith in him. And that word for faith is rooted in the Greek concept of trust, a reciprocal trust. And so in this chapter, he is going to emphasize that the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. Now, just a reminder, Paul is writing to a specific group of people, and to get the most out of his message, you kind of have to put yourself in the mindset of that people. So what must it have been like to live in Rome and try to be a good Christian, try to live the gospel of Jesus Christ surrounded by such—you know what Rome was like. It was tough. It was the Roman army. It was cruel. It was, you know, the Colosseum. I think we all know enough history to kind of get a picture of what Rome was like. It was a very carnal place. And so Paul is going to talk a great deal about the natural man and crucifying the natural man. Now, that's kind of where we left off in 6, is he's talking about baptism is a symbol of burying something. In Romans 6, 6, he says, our old man needs to be crucified Just like Jesus was crucified and came out a resurrected being, there's a change. We need to crucify our old man and come out of baptism renewed. And so now Paul's kind of on that whole theme of the wrestle within us. The battle of life isn't outward. The battle of life is inward. I am here to conquer myself. So this whole chapter of chapter 7 is that struggle. Now, on one side, Paul's going to use kind of the law. The law is what I'm supposed to do, what the gospel teaches me. Well, you could also say that that's what appeals to the Spirit. Obeying the law is what appeals to the Spirit. Keeping Heavenly Father's commandments, loving Him, that's what appeals to the Spirit. But Paul's going to use the law. And then on the other side, he's going to kind of use the flesh. The flesh is symbolized by the natural man. So this whole chapter is a struggle between, I want to follow the law, but my flesh entices me to go over here. So if I'm in the flesh, I'm dead to the law. If I'm trying to live the law, I need to kill the flesh. That's the wrestle that Paul's talking about. And I love that in verse 23, probably the best summary of this whole discussion is, I see another law in my members, in my flesh, in my natural man, warring against the law of my mind. And if I Yield to the flesh, notice what he says, it's going to bring me captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. If I yield to the Spirit, I will conquer the natural man. That's Romans 7, kind of in a nutshell, and that whole struggle of law of God versus law of the flesh. I really do see the chapter kind of broken down into two bits. We have the first seven verses, and then verses eight to the end of Romans 7 as the second part. The second part really breaks down the things that Bryce was talking about. I like the verse in verse 15 where he says, "'That which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that do I.'" My translation is, "'Why do I keep doing things that I know I shouldn't do? Why did I have that third cookie?' And then he says in verse 19, the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not do, that I do. And then he makes this statement in the 24th verse where he says, O wretched man that I am. Now, 
the first six verses of Romans 7 can be confusing because Paul likens the the relationship between Israel and the law to a woman who is married to her husband. And as long as her husband is alive, she is under that law or she is connected to her husband. But then he says that the law became dead because of Christ. That's essentially verse 4. And so this is how Elder McConkie breaks down those first six verses. He says, Paul was devising illustrations to drive home his teachings. Here he compares Israel's allegiance to the law of Moses with that of a wife to her husband. As long as her husband is alive, a wife is bound to him and must obey his laws. If she be with another, she is an adulteress. Now, obviously, Elder McConkie is likening this to Old Testament understanding of marriage. I want to just be careful because I know culturally we that sentence alone can be kind of difficult. But then he says this, When the husband dies, he can no longer direct her actions. She is free to marry another person. She can no longer be subject to him that is dead. And then here's the point. So with Israel and the law, as long as the law lived and was in force, Israel was married to it and required to obey its provisions. If she went after other gods or followed other religions, it was considered adultery. And if you remember from our reading the Old Testament, that's kind of how they described it. Israel went after other gods, and it was likened unto committing adultery. But now the law is fulfilled. It, meaning the law of Moses, no longer lives. It has become dead in Christ, and Israel is married to another, even to Christ, whose gospel law must now be obeyed. That's one way of looking at those verses. One way of looking at those verses is we're under a new law because of Christ. Another way to look at this is to say what do I do with the law? And what's its relationship to my salvation? And one of the questions Paul addresses is in verse 7, where he says, okay, what do we say then? Is the law sin? And then he says, essentially, no. The phrase in the King James reads, God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. I think one of the things Paul is saying in verse 7 is this. We need the law so we can know the designation between right and wrong. But at the end of the day, no matter what we do, we are going to fall short. The law, which designates right and wrong, clearly indicates and draws those lines of demarcation where we should be. Good example is the basketball court. There's a boundary line. There's uh, the three-point line. There's all these rules in basketball. And In the game of basketball, those lines are there to designate how the rules of the game are to be played. Well, in life, we have laws, and these laws designate what is right and what is wrong. But overall, after we finish verse 7, we read the rest of the chapter where basically Paul says, hey, no matter how hard I try, there's this war in my mind. And so to Paul, the answer to all of this is Christ. It's all about Christ, and to him, he's going to say this over and over again, it's through our faith in him, our trust in him, that he is going to bring us home. The other thing I think you should get out of Romans chapter 7 is that this struggle is all of our struggle. Every one of us, prophets, seers, and revelators have this struggle. That's why I love that Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, and Nephi says that, oh, wretched man that I am. Paul says, look, this struggle is real. And sometimes I fall short and I have to step back up and repent and move on. And Nephi, Second Nephi chapter 4, that whole psalm of Nephi is Nephi's lament of giving in to the natural man. And that's why we need a Redeemer and we need a Savior because this is a real battle and quite often we do fall short and the Lord's going to help us. We all are struggling with this. Some may be further down the road than the others, but it's still a human struggle to say, I'm trying to overcome the appetites of the flesh that are in me. And sometimes I fall and I give in to anger. I give in to one or the other. And I just, oh, oh, wretched man that I am. But that's where the Savior comes in, dusts us off, stands us back up and says, try again. We can do this. Try again. Yeah, I think all of us come to the point where we realize we just fall short. And it's only by focusing on Christ where I find hope and peace. 
the opposite of this is the world, where the world says there is no right and wrong. There are no rules. And it doesn't matter what you do. In fact, do what you want. And I think that is part of, at least in the West, I see that as part of Western culture today, the celebration of self. And as I see individuals go down that road, I really like how Nephi talks about that, the strange roads that lead into darkness. What are some of the other phrases that Nephi uses? Broad roads. and Broad roads. Forbidden roads. And and it really does lead into chaos, and and I see that as well. These Book of Mormon prophets really do hit the nail on the head. I mean, Bryce quoted 2 Nephi 4, 15 through 19, where Nephi realizes how he's falling short. His heart exclaims, O wretched man that I am, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh, my soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I am encompassed about because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. Now, other Book of Mormon prophets also spoke of this. Lehi, in 2 Nephi 2, 5, and 6 said, By the law, no flesh is justified, or by the law, men are cut off. Wherefore, redemption cometh in and through the Holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Now, Nephi wrote about the law extensively in the 25th chapter of 2 Nephi. We're not going to read all of it. There's so much in there. But basically, in one passage, he really emphasized this when he said, Wherefore we speak concerning the law that our children may know the deadness of the law, and they, by knowing the deadness of the law, may look forward unto that life which is in Christ, and know for what end the law was given. Now, to me, the way I see him saying deadness is basically two things. Nephi sees that it will be fulfilled and be dead in Christ, and in that instance, I think he's talking about the specific requirements of the law of Moses. But another way to read that phrase, deadness, is... I am dead because I'm not going to be able to 100% keep the law. That's another way that I read that verse. Now, that's where we get verse 22 of Romans 7. I really like Romans 7.22, and this is just me, how I translate it. My translation is going to read as follows. For I rejoice in the law of God according to the inner soul which is in man. You see, to me, the way I read this verse is Paul is expressing in this chapter how difficult it is to follow the law, and yet his soul rejoices in it, because there is no other way. The only way back to God is through following the commandments that he has set forth, and thank goodness Christ has done this. Because Christ has done this, I will be made free. Because Christ has done this, I will be saved. It is not through mine own efforts. And Paul is going to emphasize this throughout the epistles, how the law, which he does see and acknowledge, is difficult to follow. None of us are going to do it. He's going to say in the eighth chapter, we all fall short. And yet the law is something that he rejoices in because he realizes there's no other way. We need Christ. The final Book of Mormon verse I want to share in regards to the law is that statement by Abinadi, where he's speaking of the law, and this is in Mosiah 13, where he says, Moreover, I say unto you that salvation does not come by the law alone, and were it not for the atonement which God himself shall make for the sins and iniquities of his people, they must unavoidably perish notwithstanding the law of Moses. So I really think if we take the Book of Mormon and we use it as a lens to read some of these verses, we will be doing what Bryce talked about in our last podcast, where Bryce said, we don't want to just pick and choose a couple verses out of the epistles and make the whole gospel out of that. We have to look at the whole gospel picture in its totality, and when we do that, then we will see the truths that need to be taught. Now, continuing that conversation, we go into Romans chapter 8. Now, what I personally love about Romans chapter 8 is that I think Paul is saying, look, this isn't the body is the problem and the spirit is the solution. My body is not a problem. Now, that gets some Christian churches in a bind when they take the assumption that the problem is the body, because that would mean that God doesn't have a body. And that means like marriage or the coming together of two people physically is a bad thing. And that is not the case. The body is not the problem. It's not that my body is bad and my spirit is good. And so I love that in chapter 8, Paul gets to the real problem. If we really go to the heart of the natural man, it's not the appetite of the flesh 
It's my mind. It's what goes on inside my head. And I love that in Romans chapter 8, as he begins, and he's talking more about that wrestle, he gets to the heart of the matter. I like to point out verse 6, and again, Jacob does the same thing in the Book of Mormon. They both come to the same conclusion. Don't be surprised by similar phrases in different books of Scripture. Joseph Smith wasn't copying. The prophets were coming to the same eternal conclusions. So Paul says the problem is to be carnally minded is death. It's not that the desires of my body are bad. It's to be carnally minded. That's the enemy, to think the thoughts that lead my body to desire. Now, I love this little conversation that C.S. Lewis presents in one of his books. It's a conversation between a mind and the body. The mind is speaking to the body, and the mind says, You are always dragging me down, I said to my body. Dragging you down, replied my body. Well, how do you like that? Who taught me to like tobacco and alcohol? You, of course, with your idiotic adolescent idea of being grown up. My palate loathed both at first, but you would have it your way. Who put an end to all of those angry and revengeful thoughts last night? Me, of course, by insisting on going to sleep. Who does his best to keep you from talking too much and eating too much by giving you dry throats and headaches and indigestion, huh? Well, what about sex? I said. That was the mind speaking. Yes. What about it? Retorted the body. If you and your wretched imagination would leave me alone, I'd give you no trouble. You give me orders and then blame me for carrying them out. And I love that conversation from C.S. Lewis because I think the idea here is it's not the body that's the problem. It's being carnally minded. It's having those thoughts in my head that then start raging throughout the body. And so Paul and Jacob both conclude, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. There's the real wrestle. What do I spend my time thinking about? One example of this came from President Gordon B. Hinckley. And I know he's borrowing this from someone else, but he spoke it in conference, and so that's easy to find there, so I'm going to attribute it to him. President Hinckley gave kind of the illustration, carnally minded versus spiritually minded, by giving this example. He said, you can't tell the character of an individual by the way he does his daily work. Watch him when his work is over. See where he goes. Note the companions he seeks and the things he does when he may do as he pleases. Then you can tell the true character. Let us take an eagle, for example. This bird works as hard and as efficiently as any other animal or bird in doing its daily work. It provides for itself and for its young by the sweat of its brow, so to speak. But when its daily work is over and the eagle has time of its own to do just as it pleases, note how it spends its recreational moments. It flies in the highest realms of heaven, spreads its wings and bathes in the upper airs for it loves the pure, clean atmosphere and the lofty heights. On the other hand, let us consider the hog. This animal grunts and grubs and provides for its young just as well as the eagle. But when its working hours are over and it has some recreational moments, observe where it goes and what it does. The hog will seek out the muddiest hole in the pasture and will roll and soak itself in the filth. For this is the thing it loves. People can be either eagles or hogs in their leisure time. I think the idea that Paul and Jacob are trying to get to is what thoughts permeate your thoughts when you are free to think whatever you want to think about? If in those moments you choose to be carnally minded, 
it's going to lead to your spiritual death. But if in those moments you choose to be spiritually minded, to think lofty thoughts, to control what's on the stage of my mind, it's going to lead to carnal death, natural man death, but spiritual life. That's the key. I love another C.S. Lewis example. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this young cranky boy named Eustace who doesn't ever want to do anything work. He doesn't want to help. He finds himself in a dragon's cave, seeking shelter from the rain in the story of the voyage of the Dawn Treader. Now, not knowing what is in the bottom, the floor of Dragon's Cave, he suddenly discovers that he's sitting on gold, gold coins and crowns and bracelets. This is a dragon's treasure. And then overnight, he turns into a dragon, which is kind of the story. But I love the wording in the book. C.S. Lewis says, sitting on a dragon's hoard, thinking greedy, dragonish thoughts, he had become a dragon. I think that's such a powerful line in the book. Sitting on a dragon's hoard, thinking greedy, dragonish thoughts, he had become a dragon. To be carnally minded is to be yielding to the natural man because it resonates in your head. You're thinking it. To be spiritually minded, to fill your mind with the things of God is to yield to the spirit and put off the natural man. I think another part that really ties into this is verse 10 of Romans 8. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Now that word for quicken, so opoise, that word means, it's a couple words, it's this idea of being alive, but then it's combined with this Greek word for making things. And so the way I translate the word quicken is that God is going to make your mortal bodies alive by his spirit. In other words, I'm mortal, but if the same spirit which possessed Christ, if I allow that to be in me, God will make me alive. He'll make me a new person. And how many times have the brethren spoken of this, where we come into Christ, and it's kind of like going up a mountain, and as we're climbing up the mountain, we may feel like we're not making any advance. But if we pause for a moment, and we look where we've been, and we look where we are, we realize, oh my goodness, the Lord is taking me to loftier heights. He's taking me to new places. And Paul does speak of this when he talks about this in the 14th verse, where he says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. This is how King Benjamin explains this. He says in Mosiah 5 verse 7, and now because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he has spiritually begotten you. For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. In one aspect, the sons of God are the spiritual offspring of the Father who joyfully celebrated when the foundations of the earth were laid. We read about that in Job 38. However, in a more specific and deliberate sense, they are those who accept Jesus and follow his laws and diligently pursue truth and righteousness. They live by every word of God that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's section 84, verse 44. And through the transformative power of the Holy Ghost, these individuals become new creatures. They become spiritually begotten of God. And I've got to throw this scripture in again. It's a critical Book of Mormon scripture. Mosiah 5, 7, King Benjamin says, Because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he has spiritually begotten you. For ye say your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore ye are born of him and have become, become, his sons and daughters. So there's that. We are children of God, 
and we become children of God. It's that dual sense. In one sense, no one can change it. I am a son of God, and nothing I do and nothing you do can change that. But in another sense, I have to become a son of God. And I do that through the covenant and being born again and becoming a child of Christ this time. And so you just see that dual nature. I definitely think the main reading of verses 14 through 17 is the meaning that King Benjamin gives it, where he says, because of the covenant we've made, we become his sons and his daughters. I think that's the main reading. And yet at the same time, I really do want to testify of verse 16 as a reading of the Spirit itself can bear witness to all of us that we are children of God, meaning we are the sons and daughters of God because we were born of Him before we came to this earth. In other words, Heavenly Father is our Father. I think that verse 16 is teaching that. But I also think, again, that the main reading of these verses is Paul speaking of the change that occurs in us when we're led by the Spirit that's verse 14, or Christ or the Spirit of Christ is in us, that's verse 10, that we are, verse 11, made alive, or as the King James translators translated that as quicken, I think we are changed, we are made alive because of this. And yet, look at the promise in verse 17, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if it so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. To me, verse 17 is clearly speaking of theosis or divinization, this idea that man can become as God is. This was common teaching in the early Christian church and has been lost to the bulk of Christians today. Now, becoming a joint heir with Christ is the promise that the Father has given the saints that they shall inherit everything that the Father has. Critics of our faith have put forth the challenge that Latter-day Saints teach that we shall become independent of God, or some say even things like equals to God. But I think this criticism has been addressed by other scholars. Now, I put the rebuttal to that criticism in the show notes. We could do a whole podcast just on theosis. So just know that in the show notes, I give you links to many of the early Christian fathers that taught this. This wasn't just hidden in a corner. This is not only just taught by the early Christian fathers, but it's taught throughout Paul's epistles. This idea that we could become joint heirs with Christ and inherit all that he has throughout the rest of these New Testament podcasts, as it comes up, I will reference it, but we'll usually just send you to the show notes and you can read the quotes from the early Christian fathers on your own to kind of see how they viewed it. But big picture, I see that Paul is saying, listen, God didn't just die so that we could live in heaven or so that we could live as resurrected beings. He died so we could become heirs of God, to inherit all that he has. And I really think that the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants teaches this plainly. Now, not to get lost, that's the main idea here, but boy, there sure is a beautiful little message, kind of a side note that I think we need to take some time with. Notice that when you become a child of the covenant, not only does that make you a joint heir, but notice that it says, if it so be that we suffer with him. I love that phrase. No one suffers for him alone. We suffer with him. Every trial, every challenge I go through on my journey to Jesus is with him. Pain is not evidence that he has abandoned me, and the pains of the journey cannot compare to the glory that will be revealed. Think of section 58 that says, after the tribulation come the blessings. Think of what we talked about a couple weeks ago in the Last Supper, where a woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered, she rejoices. The blessings and the reward and the joys of the gospel are so much greater than any suffering we may have to go through to get there. Verse 18, he will say, 
I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Now, I remind you, that is a man that will also say of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, saved one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night a day in the deep. This man knew the pain of the journey to Jesus. He knew the pain of mortality. He will talk about a thorn in his flesh that he prayed mightily would be taken away and was never taken away. And yet he will say, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Remember that as you travel the journey and go through your own painful experiences. A good verse that really relates with Romans 8, 18 is 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 9, where Paul says, Eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. I think Paul's trying to give us a glimpse of what we can expect as we follow Christ. For me, the last few verses in Romans chapter 8 are probably my favorite verses in the book of Romans. I don't say that a lot, but I, I really do like them, and I guess it's because it really does communicate to me the love that Heavenly Father has for His children. Verse 35, Romans 8, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword?' Verse 37, "'No.'" In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ our Lord. I love that so much. And I see Paul working so hard to communicate the love of God to anyone who will listen. I love to read these verses with this quote by the prophet Joseph Smith. And to me, this encapsulates what I think the restoration is all about. Joseph Smith said, while one portion of the human race is judging and condemning the other without mercy, the great parent of the universe looks upon the whole of the human family with a fatherly care and paternal regard. He views them as his offspring, and without any of those contracted feelings that influence the children of men, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I really see that in the redemptive work for the dead. And I see that idea of God's love as he sends these young people that are in the flower of their life, and they sacrifice a significant time, at least from their perspective. I remember when I was 19, I thought two years was so long. And now at my age, I think, eh, two years, not that big of a deal. But when I was 19, Bryce, do you remember that? Wasn't that a long time? It was a tenth of my life. I mean, it was a long time. And yet... That is God's love. And I remember feeling that. I'm sure you had that when you were in Mexico, when you were sitting in a family's house and you were teaching the gospel and the spirit came in and you could feel that God loved them. To me, that's the heart of the gospel message. And it changes you. Yeah. When you feel that, it changes you. That's why the fruit of the tree of life, which represented the love of God, was described as being sweet above all that is sweet. If you've ever felt that and tasted that, you would agree. It is sweet above all that is sweet. I love those verses, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so good. Okay, nine. I'm sitting, like, I'm crying now. Like, what's wrong with me? I remember I was in this house where the dad was on crack and the mom had like three kids and I was looking at these kids and God was in the room. And the dad's being an idiot and God's like, but I love them. And I love this idiot father that's on crack. And I remember being 19 going, I am so blessed yeah. that I've had the gospel. Yep. So many times in my life I've had that experience. The best thing about being a teacher of the youth is quite often sitting in front of the youth and knowing that their lives are full of challenges. 
I get a glimpse. I'm, occasionally, I just get to feel in a very small way what Heavenly Father feels for these students, and my heart just pours out to them. I love them. I just can feel his love for the students I'm teaching. And it's one of the great privileges of being a teacher is to get a glimpse of how he feels for these students that are sitting, trying to find him, trying to reach out to him. I know he loves them dearly. In Romans 9, 1 through 5, Paul expresses the concern for the salvation of Israel. And I love verse 3 where he says, I pray that I myself were anathema, cast away from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsfolk, according to the flesh. In other words, what he's saying, and this really does tie into Romans 10 verse 1, where he says, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Essentially, in the third verse of Romans 9, he's saying, I would love to be cursed or be punished if I knew that it would save Israel. I'll do anything that Israel is saved. And that really is connected to the end of Romans 8, where Paul's just expressing how much God loves Israel. And then Romans 9, 14 through 18 is Paul discussing God's mercy, but also God's sovereign choice of choosing Israel. Now, I'm just going to say this. These passages do give strength to the Calvinist position of predestination, as Paul is citing here how God showed mercy to Moses and hardened Pharaoh's heart as he understood it, as if those that do wickedly are predestined to do so. I think that it's more complicated than this, and I get into some of the arguments in the show notes. I certainly see that these verses can be read from the Calvinist position, but I don't view it that way. I love Romans 10, verse 1, where he talks about his heart's desire. One of the things Romans 10 is emphasizing is that, verse 12, there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. Those that have faith in Christ will be brought to a position of salvation. The 11th chapter of Romans is, first of all, verse 1, Paul reveals to his hearers that he knows that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. But then in the 11th chapter of Romans, he gets into this idea that the tree of Israel is this great olive tree, and God has the ability to take the Jews, which are this branch of the olive tree, and graft them back in. And the Gentiles, which have received Christ, are part of this tree. But he warns them. He says, hey guys, don't get arrogant because you have Christ's spirit in you. God is able to graft whoever will back into the tree. He says this in the 13th verse. I speak to Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my office. And then he says in verse 21, If God spare not the natural branches, take heed that he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but towards thee, goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. The they and them, in verse 23, are the Jews. And what he's saying is, hey, Gentiles, you have been brought into the tree. And yes, there are some Jews that have rejected Christ, but God will graft them in again. Overall, Romans 11 is God's plan for Israel as Paul understands it, and it's using the image of an olive tree. Now, if you think about this, there's another prophet that has also done this, and that is Jacob in Jacob chapter 5 of the Book of Mormon. Which is really Zenos from the Old Testament. Yeah. Now, Romans chapter 12, in my opinion, is really easy to read, and it's easy to understand, but it's not always easy to do. That's correct. But it's very. this is where Paul's starting to get really practical. It seems to me that the latter end of Romans, that, that from these chapters on, he's kind of taught the idea of overcoming the natural man, that live in the world but don't be like the world. Don't, don't let them into your heart. And now he's giving some very practical advice, and we're going to see that in several of these chapters. For example, in chapter 12, verse 1, it's back to the idea of the law of sacrifice, the law of the animals, that you presented that to God. 
God. And he's saying, present your body as I am striving to overcome the natural man, and my life is my presentation to God. This chapter is full of one-line advice. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Such a good verse. That's a beautiful phrase, and it's such a beautiful description of everything that he's been teaching the Romans. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed And where does it start? By renewing your mind. So you just get some wonderful little one-liners in this chapter. I love them all. I love verse 10. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Do not return evil for evil. You return good for evil. So chapter 12 is just full of some wonderful little one-liner counsels from Paul the Apostle to how to live in Rome, but not be like Rome. You know, verse 15 reminds me of a conversation I had with my wife one time. We were talking about going to a funeral, and a couple of my children expressed, Mom, I really don't want to go to the funeral. It's just it's just kind of sad. And my wife said, you know what? That's what we do when we follow Jesus, is we mourn with those that mourn. In verse 15, Paul says, we weep with them that weep. That's part of being a Christian, But also verse 15 says, we rejoice with them that rejoice. We should be excited when our brother gets a scholarship or when... Good uh, things happen to someone else. It doesn't threaten that good things aren't happening to you or that God has forgotten you. We should rejoice when good things happen to others. It's a great chapter. Yeah, I really like chapter 12. And it's... If, if you're teaching young people, you could just pick any one of these verses and then talk about, okay, when have you seen this and how can we do this? What are some ways we can do better? Okay, uh, 13th. The 13th chapter to me is really interesting. It's kind of the opposite of John and the book of Revelation. You read the book of Revelation and then you read Romans 13 and you're like, these guys are clearly coming from separate positions. The big picture of Romans 13 is Paul's basically saying, listen, the people that are in charge, they're put there by God, pay your tribute, pay your taxes, be subject to the powers that be. Now, overall, I think the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has tried to be really careful in this world of empires and kingdoms and, and United States and governments to say things like, hey, we believe in being subject to the powers that be. Me, Mike Day, personally, I don't believe that every person who's in charge was put there by God. I don't personally believe that Nero was God's first choice of, you know, because Nero's probably in charge right about the time Romans is written. And that's just me. That's just kind of how I read history. I look at some of the leaders of the world are not always uh, looking out for the best interests of the people. I kind of see this in the Book of Mormon with King Noah, where we have the comparison between King Noah and King Benjamin. And I think the Book of Mormon is trying to draw that out. But here... Paul is essentially saying, listen, we have to be subject to the powers that be and don't resist them. Now, we have three pages of discussion in the show notes about this. Part of it is because I can't stop thinking about it and it could we could do our own podcast just on this. So I just want to say, if you're interested in some of the conversations about how the early thinkers Uh, thought about this. I mean, we have some stuff in here from Plato and Socrates. Uh, We have some really good commentary from James E. Talmadge, who I happen to be a fan of, and also one of my favorite non-Latter-day Saint thinkers. His name is Craig Keener. He's spoken about this extensively, and he's analyzed this from the perspective of, okay, how would Paul approach living in 1939 Poland? things like that. If you're interested in that discussion, we put some of that in the show notes for you. But big picture, Paul here is saying, hey, be subject to these powers, the powers that be. And so because of this, we just need to know that Paul was not out to undo the system, meaning the system that Rome had in place. There were multiple times in Rome when the Jews were kicked out of Rome. Multiple emperors would do this, where they would kick groups out, or they would put certain groups into positions of weakness and disenfranchise them. And Paul is just saying, hey, listen, be subject to this. He's not trying to undo the system. And so if we understand that when we read some of these other passages, uh, specifically things like Philemon and others, it will kind of give us space to give Paul grace. And here's why I think Paul writes this way. 
I think Paul's expectation is that Jesus is coming soon. I really do think that he is expecting this. And so to him, it doesn't matter because we're going to have a new system. Jesus is going to come. We're going to have this new kingdom. And it's not that big of a deal. To Paul, the big deal is this. Have faith in Christ. Trust Jesus and live the gospel, and be and walk peaceably with all mankind, and let God worry about Nero. God will take care of those empires. That's kind of how I read those first verses in Romans 13. Now, before we leave Romans 13, I just want to read this verse. This is the last verse of Romans 13. Paul says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. I translate it as follows, rather clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ and do not worry about the flesh and its longings. Paul in this verse is using the Greek word in duo. It is a word that is typically translated as put on in the King James. This to me has direct connection with the endowment and being invested in sacred clothing. This is one of the connections to the word endowment. In duo literally means to put on or to put on sacred vestments or to be invested with clothing. And so in a way, those who have been endowed in our dispensation have put on Christ and have been encouraged not to be overly concerned with the things of the flesh and worldly desires. We will see this phrase put on, Paul will use it throughout the letters. It is my belief that Paul had, I I can't prove this, it is my belief though that Paul had the endowment, the first century Christian version of the holy endowment, and Paul understands the covenants of the endowment. He'd been invested with sacred clothing, and he is teaching those with eyes to see and ears to hear the principles of the endowment. And sometimes he will use the language of it as he understood it to communicate higher truth to his listeners that were attentive. Now that leads us to Romans chapter 14. And this is where, for me, the music crescendos Because if I were teaching this to a family, to a class or something, this is where I would spend the bulk of my time. The life lesson Paul gave me in Romans 14 cannot be understated. This life lesson has changed me. Thank you, Paul. The term he uses is avoid doubtful disputations. So let me explain the concept, and then we can kind of use that as a handle. You can say to yourself, wait, that's a doubtful disputation. In my family, my children know exactly what a doubtful disputation is. And so we're able to use that handle to say, no, 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 guys, you're turning this into a doubtful disputation. So let's dive into what are doubtful disputations. Paul says in verse 1, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye but not to doubtful disputations. Now, let me preface it by saying this. There are not many things in the gospel of Jesus Christ where we all have to do them the same way. There are not. There are some. For example, uh, we all enter into the waters of baptism the same way, and we use the same words. We partake of the sacrament the same way, using the same words. Uh, in order to enter into the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, you have to enter into the, the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Everyone. There are a few, but there are not many. Mostly, the Lord governs by principle, where he gives us an overall objective, and you have to find the best way for you to accomplish that objective. For example, he says, keep the Sabbath day holy. But then he withholds on specifics on what that means. There are no instructions as to whether or not that means watching television. Do you stay in your church clothing all day? I've seen a lot of people interpret, but there are very few God-given instructions on exactly what it means to keep the Sabbath day holy. He teaches by principle, by generally guiding. Here's the general principle. Now you find a way. Now here's the problem. I am supposed to find the right way for me. But what I often do is I impose my right way on you. Because it's right for me, 
I make the assumption that it's right for everyone. And then with judgment and condemnation, I impose my opinion on what's right for me on you. You have to do it the way I did it. And that's a doubtful disputation. Now, Paul's going to use an example, food. Paul says in verse 2, For one believeth that he eateth all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. So some person says, look, I'm okay eating this. Another person says, no, you shouldn't eat that. So, for example, allow me to use a food example, but modernize it. There are those in the church who look at the word of wisdom and say, oh, well, if we're not supposed to drink coffee and tea, then that means caffeine is forbidden, and I'm not going to drink caffeinated drinks. And they hold very strong to the line that it is against the word of wisdom to drink caffeinated drinks. That's their personal choice. And they have people they love to quote. But the reality is that is not a hardline rule written into the word of wisdom. But there are those who say, no, caffeinated drinks are against the word of wisdom, and I choose not to drink them. Now, can you see the tension that's going to exist between those two groups, both trying to live the gospel of Jesus Christ and arguing over how to do so? And often they're going to impose their personal choices as a judgment on the other person. So Paul says in verse 3, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. And there's the doubtful disputation. If I choose to watch television on Sunday and you choose not to, let's not turn it into a doubtful disputation. We shouldn't despise or judge each other. We shouldn't make it an issue between us, because Paul goes on to say, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. And then I love verse 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. I see this so often where someone says, I have made a personal choice that living the gospel means this. That's great. That's wonderful that you've chosen that. But you don't have the right to beat everyone else over the head who hasn't chosen that. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not forbid the eating of meat, but it also doesn't command the eating of meat, and that becomes a doubtful disputation. There are those who have chosen not to eat meat, and they have every right to do that. They get to choose what is best for them. The problem is when, is that when they beat other people with a club— for their personal choice. You don't have to choose what they've chosen is best for them. You get to choose for you. But we beat each other up constantly over our personal choices of how to live the gospel. Unless God has declared clearly for all of us to do something, it is left as a personal choice. I stand before God how many children I have, when I have them, how I raise them, what schools I send them to, those are choices between my wife and I and our Heavenly Father, and grandma and grandpa and neighbors and ward members, they don't necessarily get a say in that. And I'm not going to let them make me feel guilty for doing what my wife and I think is best. I will stand accountable to my Heavenly Father. So let's stop beating each other up for our personal choices. I think kind of the sum up is in verse 4 for me. Who art thou that judges another man's servant? 
to his own master he standeth or falleth. Let's avoid doubtful disputations. I think Paul's key exhortation here in conjunction with that is that we accept one another. Apart from Philemon, Paul's letter here employs this, it's this Greek verb proslambano. He only uses it three times. He uses it here in 14.1, 14.3, and Romans 15.7. That proslambano verb is that verb for receive one another, but that lob stem is that stem in Greek which means to grasp or to hold. And so it's translated in the King James as receive. Look what he says in verse 1. Receive ye, verse 3, for God has received him. Look in 15.7. Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ has received us to the glory of God. Uh, Proslabato is, is the end there in 15.7. That is to come towards someone and to grasp them. Think of a handshake or think of an embrace. I think the big picture here, along with this doubtful disputations, is, okay, it's natural for us to kind of judge each other. Let's get past that. Bryce is my brother. I need to go to him and receive him. That's how it's translated in the, in the English. But that word is more than just receive. It's, he's my brother. I should embrace him. Now, in context of this, in Paul's discussion, because there was a lot of discussion in Rome, like if I buy meat from a vendor and the meat has been sacrificed to a, a pagan god, um, is it bad if I eat the meat? And Paul is essentially saying, listen, in verse 14, he says, there's nothing unclean of itself. Like there's nothing inherently evil about that meat that's been sacrificed to Zeus. But he says this, verse 21, if it's causing my brother to stumble, maybe I should be careful. In other words, yes, avoid those things if it's causing my brother to stumble because of the fact that Bryce is my brother. Like, we've got to work together. And, and I really think in the moving system of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we all have had experiences where we're rubbing shoulders with people maybe in the church, and differences come up. And Paul's acknowledging that. He's like, hey, this is really hard. But you know what? We've got to work together. Now, before we leave Romans 14, we need to just acknowledge verse 11. Paul says, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. And I'm going to add that Jesus is the Christ. I love where Elder Maxwell says, if you sense that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is the Christ, why not do so now? For the coming of that collective confession, it will mean much less to kneel down when it is no longer possible to stand up. In other words, let's acknowledge him now while we can, and, and it's good. It's good to be humble and to acknowledge that he is to have sovereignty in my life. Now, in my opinion, Romans 15 can get kind of complicated. Big picture, Paul's looking to this group of saints, hoping that they will have acceptance and unity, that they'll accept each other and that they'll be unified. Paul encourages the believers to accept one another just as Christ has accepted them. And so his example is Christ. He reminds the Christians that Jesus came as a servant to the Jews, fulfilling the promises that were made to their ancestors. So for Paul, this highlights the faithfulness of God and serves as an example of Christ's humility and Christ's inclusiveness. And so because of this, the Gentiles are partakers of the truth. Paul sees this, that the Gentiles have a role in God's plan. Quoting from various Old Testament passages in Romans 15, Paul illustrates that the Gentiles were prophesied to praise God and to rejoice with his people. He stresses that the Gentiles' inclusion into God's plan should bring them hope, joy, and peace. And so because of this, and through their faith in Christ, the Gentiles can experience the abundant blessings of salvation. And then finally, the power of the Holy Spirit is emphasized in Romans 15. Paul emphasizes the role of the Holy Ghost in empowering believers to live in unity and proclaim the gospel to all nations. He highlights the Spirit's work in bringing about salvation and inclusion of both Jews and Gentiles. I think that's the big picture in some of these verses. I acknowledge these verses can be kind of clunky. 
A couple other things I want to mention here in Romans 15 before we conclude is this city that's mentioned in verse 19. Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. That city that can be difficult to pronounce. What is that city? <laughs> that city, Illyricum, was north of Macedonia, across from Italy, on the eastern Adriatic coast, on the west of what is the region of Serbia and Yugoslavia. In essence, what he's saying is, I've been to these locations and I've preached Christ. But then he makes a request. And it's kind of uh, subtle. And we just need to know this, that the way it's worded, he's not demanding this, but he's kind of suggesting to the Roman saints, hey, I want to go to Spain but I don't have the money to go there. And so essentially what he's doing here is he's making a a subtle financial request for the saints in Rome to help pay his fare so that he can go to Spain and spread the gospel. This is what he says. Verse 24, Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you if first I be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go to Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. You see, in Paul's time, hospitality held great value, and the believers would likely consider an honor to partner with Paul, who was an esteemed apostle, in this endeavor of getting him to Spain. And it is possible that the saints in Rome, when they're asked this, would go above and beyond what he asked them for. But it is important to note that his expectation of financial support for his journey to Spain does not place an undue burden on them, as similar expectations existed in other mission contexts, as evidenced by the significant offerings mentioned in Romans 15, 15 through 27. By mentioning his plans for Jerusalem, along with his Roman and Spanish plans, he's suggesting that while the Eastern churches have contributed to the Jerusalem offering, the Roman believers have the opportunity to sponsor a distinct and groundbreaking ministry of the apostle on the Western part of the empire. Now, the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament never mention his journey to Spain. And so the question is, did he ever make it to Spain? And the New Testament doesn't settle this. But in Christian history, several of the early church fathers acknowledge that Paul was able to take the gospel as far west as Spain. Now, many scholars look at this and say, there probably weren't any Jewish settlements in Spain. So this would have been, talk about making a cold call. This would be Paul going where there's no Old Testament foundation and just going to a group of people that have no reference to what he's speaking of. Now for me, that's a big ask. And to me, knowing who, kind of how I read Paul, I see Paul as saying, let's do this. Like I, I totally could see him doing this. Now, the early Christian fathers totally say that he does this. We put this in the show notes, quotes by Clement, which lived in Paul's era in the first century. We put a statement by the fourth century bishop of Jerusalem. I happen to be a big fan of this guy, Cyril of Jerusalem. He talks about Paul making it as far as Spain. And also uh, John Chrysostom, or Golden Mouth. He was was a saint that lived in the 4th and 5th century. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople. And then finally, Jerome, I'm a a huge fan of him as well, because he's the guy that put the Bible on the map, and he wrote the Latin Vulgate. He translated it into Latin in Bethlehem. So Jerome is a big deal. He acknowledges this. So the early fathers of the first four or five centuries of Christianity are all acknowledging this. Paul made it to Spain. So here's the thing. Wouldn't it be awesome to have that in the New Testament? And there's so much we just don't have. Every missionary who serves in a non-Christian country would love the writings of Paul to Spain. I think that would be a completely different approach to preaching the gospel. How do you teach Jesus to people who don't know anything about a background? That's a hard ask. That's a hard ask. And yet, don't you see Paul saying, let's Bring do it? it. On. Yeah, yeah I, I, that's it how on. I see him. Now, that kind of brings us to the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. We remind you that you need to get yourself into the mindset of the people to whom he's writing. Ask yourself, what is the purpose of the letter? And then you'll get much more out of those letters. 
as you read through this epistle to the Romans, may you find Jesus in your own struggle in the Romes in which you find yourself. May you come to know the peace that the gospel brings. He will be with you in those trials. And the reward, as Paul testified to the Romans, the pains and the sufferings of that journey will not be worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. May you have a wonderful journey as you journey to him through Rome, is our prayer. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we talk about 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7. Now we're on to Greece. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.